We never know where life will lead us or what may hinder us along the way. But while every day can feel like one big question mark, it doesn't have to. With the right insights, strategies, and solutions from Western and Southern Financial Group, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco. And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Pelizzolo back here with Sam Monson live on a Monday morning. You ready to go, man? What's up, Steve? You don't often get a countdown from seven. You know, That's usually it. it's 10 or 3, 2, 1 or 5 maybe, but 7 is a hell of a number to start don't from. Don't talk about the behind-the-scenes oh, stuff Oh, sorry. Here. My bad. Live is, live is tricky, man. Going live is tricky. But here we are, waking up with the PFF NFL Podcast. You can also wake up with the PFF NFL Daily because that's already out. So go subscribe there, PFF NFL Daily. We talk about the second wave of free agency and moves that Sam and I want to see. It's a whole separate podcast, so go and subscribe over there. We're going to kick things off today with, uh, what, story time? You wanted to hear, you, you had this uh, Mina tweet that's been uh, well, going yeah, it's, crazy? So it's not a mailbag um, email that came in, though they are coming in, and some of them are good. Um, podcast, uh, what is it, NFL podcast, singular. We get a lot. We're getting a lot of good ones. Yeah, NFL podcast at pff.com. Send us your emails. Send us whatever you're thinking. Um, if they're good and we read them out, one person a week is going to win a PFF subscription just as a thank you for you know sending us some good email. Uh, this isn't that, though. This was just a tweet that a friend of the show, Mina Kimes, put out on Twitter yesterday. Before we get into it, just this show is going to be about the biggest stories of free agency. We'll go over some of the weekend stuff. Kenny Galladay becoming a Giants, which we almost kind of broke on the podcast on Friday. Well, we did break. It just wasn't true at the time. Right. Um, so we'll get into all that stuff. But start with this Mina tweet and, and what's happening. So Mina tweeted yesterday, uh, what is the stupidest injury? So, you know the way, like, it's always the tweet that does well that has, like, a typo or a bit of bad grammar in it? So what is the stupidest injury you've ever occurred? Which I'm pretty sure is not English, but you get what she's saying. She's a writer. She yeah, knows. yeah. Anyway, she says she'll go first. She popped her jaw last week by brushing her teeth too vigorously. It still hurts. Anyway, this thing is kind of insane. It's got like four and a half thousand replies, 6,000 quote tweets. Uh, so I figure we'll start off by finding out what ours were. Um, I'll start because mine's not tremendously interesting, but I can fix it with a story about somebody else, which is the funniest injury I've ever seen happen to somebody. Um, we used to warm up before football games with something that we, we termed reaches, but I've never seen like, I don't know if there's a technical term for them. I've also, I don't think ever seen anybody else attempting them. So it might just be that this is a bad thing to be doing, but it was sort of like you yeah, run along the line. And it was like mini skips where like right arm, right knee goes straight up in the air and, and then left arm, blah, blah, blah. I'm picturing it. Yeah. Yeah. So just landing from one of those, I rolled my ankle so badly that it ruptured something called a bursa sac, 
which I didn't know was a thing until I went to the doctor and they're like, yeah, oh yeah, you've ruptured a bursa sac right there. Uh, and shredded ligaments in my ankles. Like by far the worst sporting injury I've ever done happened just from like landing from two feet up in the air in the course of a warm up. So I never did those again. That's embarrassing. Yeah, it was pretty bad. By the way, the, the best response to Mina's that I saw so far is the guy that got hurt dancing at the wedding. Do you see? That's like one of the first. It, it has over a thousand likes or whatever it is. That was pretty Emmanuel awesome. Emmanuel Acho's is pretty good. Do you see his? I didn't see. I just saw the guy had like pictures of him falling at the wedding. It he was amazing. said he ruptured his MCL reenacting the story of him rupturing his MCL. <laughs> that is, that's tough to top. Yeah. Um, yours is good, though. I like yours. I told you Tell mine last yours. night. So uh, freshman year of high school. Uh, we would have baseball camps with you know, so my high school baseball coach ran all these camps and we would work at the camp. So I would throw batting practice to like the eight and eight, nine year olds or whatever. And we were in like the dungeon of our high school. We were in the bomb shelter turned batting cage. Nice. So we were in this tight batting cage wall is directly to my right. And there were little parts of the wall that stuck out a little bit further. So the, like the tension of the net wouldn't slow the ball down in these, you know, like certain spots. So I throw a little pitch to an eight-year-old who hits this, you know, 32-mile-an-hour line drive, just this soft line drive, and I'm just watching it in slow motion, <laughs> and it's a line drive, and, you know, the, the net usually catches it, and it just falls to the ground, but yeah. it hits the part that's protruding, bounces off, comes up, hits me square in the nose, and I just go down, slow motion, and start bleeding all over the carpet. Beautiful. That's what an eight-year-old felled you. Eight-year-old yeah. knocked me out with uh, line drive. <laughs> it was uh, pretty funny. I so my the one that I'm going to rescue mine with is a similar story because so I went to a cricket school in England, and cricket does batting practice in a, in the same kind of thing. It's in the nets, right? And they're usually just this sort of stack of um, like rectangles, relatively long rectangles, where, with a wicket in them. So you bowl down, the guy is just batting straight down, and the same thing, right? There's enclosed netting on all sides so wherever you the the batter hits the ball is going to get caught by the netting and there's one two three four stacked side by side but if where they join so at the top like the roof netting is not necessarily connected to the side netting so a a friend of mine was in one uh, batting net and the guy to his right drills this ball fired it into the roof which like slingshotted it over the side netting and then back down again connected square in this guy's face and he had like the imprint of a cricket seam in his face for like the next week and a half now that's awesome it was, so he came into school and they were what the hell happened to you and he had to tell this story to everybody in every <laughs> class he was in for like the next week it was one of the funniest things i've ever seen happen to anybody made only funnier by the fact that it then lasted on his face for the next 10 days seems are uh seems are a good battle scar all right let's get into the uh let's get into the biggest uh, free agent story so over the weekend kenny galladay signs with the giants we did talk about that on friday so last week we also gave you guys a bonus podcast thank you for for listening because we you know sometimes you you get an extra podcast out there and you don't know how it's going to do but the people loved it people listen to it at the same rate that they listen to other podcasts we reviewed all of the afc and the nfc in two separate podcasts and those also seem to be the ones that people love the most sam the ones where we go for for two hours breaking down every single team and what's happening but um kenny galladay we talked about it on friday a little bit let's just cover that quickly officially a giant and revamping that group of playmakers for daniel jones in year three 
if we add up the daily as well, we add like seven hours worth of podcasting last week. And that's not even counting the live show stuff that we did as well. Yeah. It's it, quite a lot of podcasts. And the numbers are going through the roof, man. Millions and millions listening to us every, every week. All right. So Kenny Galladay of the Giants. We, we already, I mean, we covered it. <laughs> Back before we broke it, we then broke it. And, and then it happened. It's the same story. I, you really like the fit, right? You think that Kenny Galladay, stylistically, he is one of those sort of YOLO specialist wide receivers. That's not to say he can't do other things, but he is in that mold of a little bit like Allen Robinson, where the thing they're best at is those contested catches. They're, they're big-bodied receivers. They've got great body control, great ball skills at the catch point. And they can fix a lot of relatively errant throws and or just increase the margin for error for the throw at the catch point. And with Daniel Jones, skews a little bit towards that YOLO mentality. It's a good mesh. Um, good, vert, another vertical threat to go with Darius Slayton that's, is what I yeah. like as well. Jones, Daniel Jones was one of the most efficient deep ball throwers in the league last year. Highest passer rating. Um, everything else wasn't great. For Daniel Jones but that was the one thing he did well even though that's not always stable when you add a Kenny Galladay that's one way to increase the stability of downfield passing my only concern is that I don't know that um, pairing that style of receiver with a young quarterback that hasn't yet mastered his craft is necessarily a good thing I think it starts to skew his uh, approach to the game a little towards when in doubt, just heave it at that guy. And sometimes that works out, right? It's great. You, you create those highlight reel plays where he goes and mosses somebody at the catch point and you get a great game. And it's like, wow, that connection's amazing. But what are you turning down in order to take those shots? And would you be better off if you went through your progression more honestly and found the guy that's open? Now, Ryan Fitzpatrick has kind of made a career out of going, look, sometimes you don't have the time to do that. You just got to go one YOLO. Right, And that's great. That's why Ryan Fitzpatrick is still hanging around and still able to get a lot done at whatever age he is and onto his ninth team or whatever. That, Our but, age. Yeah, but like, there's also a reason that Ryan Fitzpatrick has never been a great quarterback. Like He's limited. He doesn't. He's not able to go through his progression time after time after time and buy the kind of time he needs to find the open guy the way an Aaron Rodgers or a Patrick Mahomes or those other great quarterbacks have been able to do. So if, if, if you want Daniel Jones to become great, I don't know if pairing him with a Kenny Galladay is necessarily helping that progression. What would you do differently? I mean, that's the problem, right, is that you, that you need one of those receivers. So, I mean, I don't know. In, in order to maximize that, I think you need a receiver that wins with separation. Now, that would limit them to the draft because those guys aren't really available in free agency anymore. So... I agree that, look, Kenny Galladay was the best receiver available in free agency. And again, Kenny Galladay is a really good receiver. I'm not crapping on him. I'm just saying that if, you're, if your sole mission in life right now as the Giants is to make Daniel Jones as good as possible or to maximize his ability to be great, I think you, there might have been better options than Kenny Galladay or better, better approaches, better ways of, atta of attacking that. Well, I think he's going to be all right. I like it. I like Galladay and Slayton as vertical threats, Sterling Shepard and Kyle Rudolph, who they bring in as underneath threats, and then Evan Ingram um, as the movable chess piece that he's, you know, when he's had success, that's, that's what, he's, what he's done a good job with. So let's, uh, somebody mentioned we need to talk about Joe Douglas and the Jets and their A-plus free agency. We are going to get to that. We're going to get to the, 
I mean, the NFC, the AFC East in general is a is a pretty big story, given what the Patriots did, given what the what the Jets have done, um, and then you know old AFC East people like Nick Casario and what they've done with the Texans are an interesting story. But I want to start with the Patriots uh, because they are one of the biggest stories of free agency. They've they've spent the most money, they've made the most moves, and Robert Kraft has some new quotes out there. The New England Patriots owner. Uh, Bert Breer's Monday morning quarterback article. It's a good read over at, is it, where is it, MMQB? (laughs) (laughs) I assume so, yeah. I've been confused with some (laughs) of the changes over there, but, you know, Bert Breer's article. Uh, You want to read these craft quotes here, Sam? Go on, hit me. A couple highlights here. It's very exciting. Look, we want to win. We're spoiled. This is Robert Kraft. We got used to winning all the time. That's our objective. It's a very competitive sport. It's all geared to having every team be 8-8 or over a long balance of time. The way the draft is, the way we all have the salary cap, this was a unique year in the sense that the cap came down. But because we had so many players opt out last year, then have a non-continuation of the quarterback salary at a higher level, it created a uniquely big cap opportunity. So he calls it, uh, quote, a chance for us to recharge. We've never done anything like this in all the years I've owned the team, Robert Kraft. So what we did as we were competing for new players, normally in free agency, you have 10 or 12 teams going after it. Here we had two or three. And I just want to compliment our staff, our organization, Bill, all the scouting and personnel for a real team effort. He goes on to say, we, don't, we won't know until the fall. And here's the, here's the fun one. Quote, we always used to make fun of the people who won headlines in March. Mm. But here I believe we really improved our team. Yeah. And, uh, and then he says, we got to win. We'll let things play out. Um, and, I've, and here's another one interesting one. I've never had to come up with as much capital this fast if you total the numbers but we're happy to do it and we hope it has the right outcome saying you know we gotta we have to get the cash out there right now won't somebody please think of the billionaires on these sites like look it's all fun and games until you're the guy that has to cut the check for whatever this is like 170 million dollars worth of first year spending look i I just think there's there's a lot to unpack here and honestly i think if you go back to our patriots analysis, at least my patriots analysis i don't know about yours if you go back to mine the other day in the AFC review, this, this is essentially what he's saying. So I'm either the perfect talking head for the Patriots. Yeah, okay. You know, Stacey James, mouthpiece, Patriots PR guy. Like, let me, let me take over. I got this. Yeah, mouthpiece, I believe is the term. The mouthpiece. Um, or, you know, you're right, and the whole thing's crazy. But the, the point is, he mentioned market inefficiency. But I, here's the interesting one. He, he did somewhat admit that in free agency, you usually have 10 or 12 teams competing for players Mm -hmm. they were in the market supposedly with two or three other teams and they still spent a ridiculous amount of money this is the point right this and and the crux of the whole thing is what he said at the end which is we used to take we used to take the piss out of teams that won free agency in march can you explain that for americans which is piss that's that doesn't we don't understand that i understand it because i've worked with you for 10 years but you know mock there you go we used to mock, laugh at the teams that won free agency right now. And, but, but now we're asking you to trust us that we are the exception, that we actually did win free agency or the offseason because it's us and we're different. That's the, that's the bottom line with all this. If this was any other team, we would be looking at this as that's a silly way of approaching things and this is not how good teams work and this is evidence of all not being well within this franchise. But because it's the Patriots, everybody's going well. This is a unique opportunity. Look at the way they've schemed this with 40 chess, and it's the Patriots. So of course, they're doing it right. This is the Patriot way. I, okay, what I will say is that, yes, look, things 
coalesced into this happy accident, serendipitous world of them having a shit ton of cap space and suddenly the market or suddenly the need to actually spend a lot of this salary cap uh, room. But the one thing you've got to look at is, okay, yes, you had the money to spend and the need to spend the money, but look at where the, some of the money has gone and why are some of these numbers so high? So there's a lot of moves in there, in there that are like typical Patriots moves, I think, that do make a lot of sense. So, you know, things like Henry Anderson for two years, seven and a half million. That's really not a lot of money for a guy that is consistently <laughs> above average to solid. Um, a ton of the, like, signing Kyle Van Noy again, a guy that's excelled within your system and nowhere else. Again, like two years, 13.2 million, not a lot of money. That's a good move. There's a bunch of these, like, small little additions that are good solid moves in there then you have things like nelson Aguilar, two two years 26 million dollars in a year where like wide receivers can't buy a contract anywhere um kendrick Bourne, three years 22.5 million uh jalen mills four years like where was the the one that really jumped out to me was um judon no judon again though more than i think but i, I get that one it's um dietrich wise Bringing back Dietrich Weiss for a four-year, $30 million contract, 10 of which is guaranteed. Dietrich Weiss was a player where you look at and you say, that guy feels like he's been held back and buried within this New England system because he doesn't really defend the run that well. And actually liberated from this defense, he might be a dramatically better player. And yet that's the team that has sort of paid him significantly more money than you would have thought he might earn if he got a, a, di a different shot somewhere else. So I guess my point is simply, it feels like they've overpaid, not universally, but in a lot of these situations. And if all you were doing was battling against one or two teams, why has the price been driven up so consistently across all of your signings? Yeah, and again, I think I think the, the proper analysis here for the Patriots is just looking at 2021 versus 22. I think this year they are going to get better. All of those players, whether they were making... 2 million or 10 million make this team better, right? They have more guys, far more guys to throw to. The The main point offensively is they have more ways to win. They actually have pass catchers that they can trust. Their current pass catchers, Jacoby Myers, we'll see if Edelman's back. We'll see if Nikhil Harry's actually back. But just moving those guys down the depth chart makes this team better. Uh, Matthew Judon is a good Patriots-like, movable chess piece type of player. He'll drop into coverage. He'll, he'll rush the passer. But... Is he actually better than Josh Uche, Josh Uche who's already on the roster, you know, right, you know as, a, as a very good pass rusher last year as a rookie? So, look, I think they're better next year. I keep going back to 2022 because next year in free agency. I mean, so here's, here's my proxy for it. Two years ago, they traded a second rounder for Mohamed Sanu, which I thought in a vacuum wasn't the worst thing in the world. I was wrong, but in a vacuum, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. The Patriots had some desperation. They had lost Antonio Brown. They lost Josh Gordon. They're trying to make one last run with Tom Brady. Second rounder for Muhammad Sanu. Then you get to the draft and you see the talent on the wide receiver board last year. Guys like Debo Samuel went, uh, no, that was the, is that the right year? No, this was last year. But like last year, in the last couple of years, who have we seen go in the second round? We've seen Debo Samuel be a second rounder. We've seen A.J. Brown. Last year, all, we thought it was one of the best wide receiver classes ever. And you're like, wait, you just used a second rounder on a half season of Muhammad Sanu, essentially. Mm. I think that's what we might get into next year at this time. I guess. The, the Patriots, well, just, just say, like, the Patriots get a little bit better, and you look at the free agent class of receivers, and you're like, 
you're locked into Nelson Aguilar here in 2022 for 15 million and Hunter Henry for 15, John New Smith for nine, Matthew Judon for 16, sorry, John New Smith for 13. You're going to look at all these guys who are good players and they're going to be making twice as much as other good players. I think generally I have been too negative on their spending spree, this free agency, but it's because I think what I'm doing is misdirecting the negativity. It's not that the Patriots overall are undeserving of negative attention. It's that it shouldn't probably be be specifically directed at this spending spree. Now, I think they have overpaid for a lot of these players, but the, the, the overall point is they had money to spend, they needed to spend money, and they will be better in 2021. So those three things together, it makes it very difficult to argue that this was bad, like net, you know? So they have got better. They have done some good things. The problem is that I do think that this spending spree is indicative of a franchise that's gone off the rails over the past couple of years. You don't, ha- you don't make this kind of spending spree if everything is in good order and things are going well and you are already in a pretty good situation. You make this kind of spending spree because suddenly you're in a pretty big hole and you're making one last like desperate heave to bring it all back in one go. It's like, you know, a gambling debt, right? We are in the hole. We, want, we need one big win to bring it all back, get back to 500 and then walk out of the casino even with that and but the problem is those big gambles don't always pay off so I think what we're looking at here is the Patriots have just found themselves in this bad situation where they've allowed this roster to be eroded over the past couple of years and some of it was because they loaded up for that one last go around with Tom Brady which worked I mean they won Super Bowls off the back of it um, but some of it is they've just made too many bad decisions and that really when you look at a lot of the teams that are in a bad situation in the NFL, that's what it boils down to, right? You just you went on a run where you screwed up too many talent evals, whether it's a draft, whether it's free agency, or a combination of both. If you miss too many consecutively, you just end up too far behind the eight ball, and there's almost no way of pulling yourself out of that without flipping the script and going on a run of just nailing a few evaluations. Doesn't this just show how valuable Tom Brady has been through the years, yes. though? Because yeah, they used to sit there laughing at other teams for doing this because they could go into the offseason and not do a whole bunch and they could grab a couple role players and, you know, Brady will fix all, right? But at the same time, the years that they were more aggressive, there were two or three times throughout the dynasty where the talent got depleted and the Patriots were like merely a 12-4 and four type of team, merely an AFC, you know, conference championship participant. And then they rectified that, right? After 2006... They're like, wait, we can't do this anymore. With the, they, Literally the worst receiving core in the league in 2006, they said, we're getting Randy Moss and Wes Welker. After 2013, to, you know, we can't just give Tom Brady undrafted free agent wide receivers and not so good second round wide receivers as rookies. We have to go get a Brandon LaFell and we have to, you know, and we have a healthy Gronk. We have to actually make some moves. And they went and got Darrell Revis in 2014. So the old Patriots teams used to be like, make a few nice moves and be good or make a few aggressive moves. Stefan Gilmore was an aggressive move and turn into super teams essentially. But now these are necessary moves where we always talk about range of outcomes. And if you sign 10 free agents, the range of outcomes gets wider and wider. The more you sign, if they all hit their peak, just using say wins above replacement, if they all hit their peak and you get a half a win from this guy and a quarter of a win from that guy, it all pays off. But obviously it's not all going to hit. So you, 
you're just playing a riskier game, but a necessary one when you have a cheap quarterback. Yeah, but you can look at it two ways and say, well, the difference this time is no Tom Brady, therefore the moves didn't work out. Or you can look at it and say, well, they they did the same thing this time. They tried to make the same kind of move where it's like, oh, let's go get a Randy Moss and Wes Welker, or, or let's go get... They swung at it. They brought in Antonio Brown, who lasted a game before legal troubles landed him, or legal issues landed him in trouble. They traded the second-round pick from Mohamed Sanu. They were tempted back into the first round of the draft for a wide receiver for the first time since, what, 06 to draft Nikhil Harry. The problem is the three moves, the three swings you took struck out each and every time. And, you know, you know what they say, Steve, three strikes and you're out. So that's ultimately what it comes down to is, yeah, Tom Brady not being there certainly didn't help. On the other hand, I think the big issue is you just struck out too many times with your evaluations. All right, I think the AFC East does in in general is a is a good division. It's a fascinating division. You got the Bills, who we said on the the other show did a nice job just kind of maintaining status quo, getting their players back that they needed, replacing John Brown with an Emmanuel Sanders. The Dolphins, who knows if there's still a move to be made for Deshaun Watson, but the Jets. We already had the request to break down the uh, the Jets in their in their hall. And I know we've talked about it a little bit. That's one of the teams that you like the most so far. Yeah. Free agency. Don't look now, but the Jets are doing a bunch of smart things, um, which is something you can't say about that franchise for a while. I really like almost all of the moves that they've made. Um, the I, This is obviously uh, sort of sh- – the only issue is that they still have no real solution at quarterback, which is – now look the draft is still coming i'm not saying that they should have done something now i'm just saying that for all of the love that we're going to throw their way it might not mean anything if they can't find an answer at quarterback i'm going to connect those dots. let's discuss what they've done in free agency and then mike renner has a fresh third three round mock draft on the website and i think it's worth looking at what the jets did in that mock draft so let's go through that you know carl lawson is in Corey davis is in let's go through the Jets moves really quick again, why we like them and why they have an opportunity to really turn this roster over with all this draft capital. So the Jets haven't had a top tier pass rusher for years now. And okay, they've run some defenses where you would say it it isn't the highest priority in the world, but you know, new coach coming in edge rusher is definitely a feature of his defense. Carl Lawson, I think was arguably the best pass rusher available in this free agency at the point where Shaquille Barrett was taken off the market he wouldn't have been the highest, uh, he wouldn't have been the biggest name or the most coveted, I don't think, because he doesn't have the sack numbers. But this is a guy coming off a season with, I think, 64 total pressures last year, which resulted in six sacks. He has by far the best pass rushing grade of these guys on a consistent basis. I would say that is the best pass rusher in terms of the edge that the Jets have had since John Abraham. And he hadn't, like, when was the last time he played for the Jets? 2005? You're going back 15 years since the last time the Jets had a pass rusher as good as Carl Lawson. So I think that one they nailed. Like you could have gone with a Bud Dupree or another higher priced, higher name or bigger name. But I think Carl Lawson was the right move. It was 2005. Yeah, there you go. See? Um, good. You bring in Sheldon Rankins. I think that's a great lower level insurance policy on the defensive line. A, a rotation guy, a guy who at his peak when he's healthy – has been worth that first-round pick. Corey Davis and Keelan Cole come in and try and repair some of the, the, the receiving core that they've had there. 
pair them with Denzel Mims, with Jamison Crowder, suddenly that's a pretty good little group that whoever the new quarterback is has to, to throw to. Even just the like throwaway moves they've made. LaMarcus Joyner for a one-year $4.5 million deal, and they've said to play safety, which is always his thing. At slot corner, the guy has not been good. At free safety, the guy has a PFF career grade in the 90s. So yeah, yeah we've seen him bounce. He went from slot corner to safety, back to slot corner. Yeah, in that one, you know, one peak year and a half or whatever it was at safety. And he's getting older now, so it's not like it's a slam dunk the way it might have been a few years ago. But for a one-year, four point five million dollar deal, move him back to free safety and see if that still plays. That's great business. Yeah, and then you know, Sheld- the Sheldon Rankins deal—they get him for two years, uh, eight and a half guaranteed, seventeen million total. Sheldon Rankins is one of those guys. It was. Just the potentials there, right? Yeah. He's shown the flashes through the years. So adding him and Carl Lawson along the defensive line, adding LaMarcus Joyner at safety, as you said, to a specific role to play opposite Marcus May, love it, and just continue to throw resources at wide receiver. And retaining Marcus May, franchise tag, right. keep him that was in the, the building. That was the beginning of it, right? That was the beginning of this offseason uh, move. So um, I like Renner. So Renner's got the, the mock draft up. And, and look, this, this should get Jets fans excited. And it, it, the fun of mock drafts is when you see a team that has so many picks, you just kind of see the possibilities and what it's like or what, how much talent they could potentially add. Um, <laughs> I like Renner does, you know, everybody's got to try to have this, some like clever write-up on each player. He's got like three words on Trevor Lawrence. Hmm. No one they could have signed in free agency is changing this one. And that's it, Trevor. It's essentially the mock is how free agency changed uh, the draft, right? So Trevor Lawrence goes number one. He gives Zach Wilson to the Jets at number two. And I think that's, there's your quarterback. So now we're building and rallying around Zach Wilson. So what do you do beyond that if you're the Jets? At 23 overall, this is the Jamal Adams pick. Renner goes with Quiddy Pay, who's number one on our edge defender list, but not sure if the NFL, I don't know how they value him. Mm-hmm. A guy that's had um, you know some production, but we've mentioned before, there's no Chase Young in this draft. There's no Bosa in this draft. The edge class could be all over the place. But Quiddy Pay comes in to play with Carl Lawson. I mean, between the two, you're probably going to find an elite edge rusher. Um, so I love that at 23. Then you get at 34, uh, Dylan Radon's offensive tackle from North Dakota State, potential starting tackle. You put him on the right side. You got Makai Becton on the left. There's a need fit or, uh, filled. Uh, and then at 66, round three, Afiadu Melifonwu. Hmm. Another Melifonwu who just crushed it. The Melifonwus are really good at, athletically. Just crushed it at his pro day. The dude's huge, Chocker. moves well. Yeah. And, and who knows what he ends up being. But if you talk about a massive corner, you know, that could be a, a, a fit, round three, that's great. And then Amonra St. Brown, another third rounder, another wide receiver from USC who's probably a, you know, a second round caliber player as well. So, man. That's the potential that the Jets have when you sprinkle those draft picks around the free agent moves that they've made. And this team could be one of the most improved in the league this year. Yeah, that I mean, <clears throat> when you start sketching out like an ideal scenario for the Jets, that gets pretty close. Just if you were if you were only drafting for the Jets and you were trying to pick out a great draft for them, it would end up pretty close to that. So for him to sketch out that scenario in the process of a three-round mock draft, that would be outstanding return for, for the Jets. Look, I, I think they, they've done a lot of smart things. They're moving in the right direction. It all hinges on nailing the quarterback evaluation, whether it's Zach Wilson, whether it's Justin Fields, whoever it is. And even if it's, I mean, I hate the idea, but even if it's, hey, 
we think that Sam Darnold can be salvaged here and we're going to build around him. And look, his situation has been wretched between supporting cast and coaching and the offensive system he's been in. We believe that he's the guy that can turn it around. And we are the people that believe or that agree with Dan Orlovsky. Um, look, if they're right, that's it. It just it all hinges on them being right on that one move to, to validate everything else they've done. I want to go to where did I want to go? The, te- the Houston Texans, because as we were talking about the biggest stories, you wanted to talk about the Texans. Yeah. And it's really about they made. I mean, I'm looking at the PFF free agency tracker over at PFF.com. And the way my screen is, usually you could fit like two teams. So we have a list of all their moves. You could fit like two or three teams on my computer screen at, the, at, at a time here. Mm. The Texans, the, all of their moves don't even fit on my screen. Did I read all these the other day? I know I did, but there's a lot here. They've signed everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Every third-class free agent is going to Houston. No offense to anybody. And Desmond King, which could be a steal. And they've been trading. And they've been trading. But, you know, receivers. Alex Erickson have been added to, has been added to the mix. Dante Moncrief. Ryan Finley got traded for. Cole Toner is in there. I mean, they are bringing players in left and right. And it does seem like the Texans' goal right now is to solidify roster spots 43 through 53. Mm. That is their goal right now because these are the players that they're signing. Yes. (laughs) It's a strategy. I mean, to their credit, there are teams out there in free agency where you look at what they've done and you say, I don't know what the plan is. Based on, the, like, based on the external evidence, obviously we're not in the meetings with these guys deciding what the strategy is. All you can do is judge off what they've done. Yeah, strategies revealed in, in action. Yeah, and there are teams out there where it doesn't look like there is a coherent strategy. You just, you've no idea what they're doing. The moves seem fairly random. It, it doesn't speak to any greater plan where everything slots into place. The Texans, there's a plan. I mean, this is a very coherent strategy. It's all of a very similar ilk. We are acquiring low-value, decent players for the most part that we think can upgrade the bottom 20 positions on this roster and would therefore presumably move this team forward. The question is, like, what are you doing with the first 20 spots in the roster? To be fair, these guys will start, too. I mean, I'm... Yeah, I'm that's saying, not a good thing. Right. Like, These are guys that normally are – a lot of them are backups or solid players or role players. But, like, Terrence Brook, Brooks is going to start at safety, likely, or has a chance to. Desmond King will be a starter. Kevin Pierre-Lewis at linebacker will have a chance to start. Justin McCray at guard will have a chance to start. Malik Collins, interior defensive lineman, he'll play. Uh, so they have a lot of guys that are going to play. But, yeah, I just um, – they're all one- and two-year contracts for a team that's rebuilding. So. Yeah. At some point, the moves need to be, who am I getting for four years? Say like a Tyus Bowser deal. Four years, $22 million. This is the Baltimore Ravens. Young player, his his second contract. He's going to be a part of – we're going to con- develop him. He's going to be a part of the rebuild. Those are the moves I think that are lacking at this point. And a lot of these are really smart short-term gambles. I mean, um, Desmond King is a guy with with elite PFF grading in his career. It's just it's getting further and further in the past at this point. But to sign him for a one-year, three-point-whatever-million-dollar deal. Yeah, what's the point? That's a great gamble. No, it's a great gamble, though. Like, okay, this is a guy with actual elite talent somewhere in his locker. 
We just haven't seen it for a while. Is this a comp pick move, though? Because are they trying to win this year? How, him on a one-year deal, what's, what's the point is well, what I'm asking. roll the dice if he ends up being great, re-sign him. Um, I like that kind of thing as a gamble. I think if it was a team that was already in pretty good position, we would be lauding that as a great pickup. Same with um, Kevin Pierre-Lewis. Like, this is a bad year to be trying to find linebackers that can cover in space. He's a guy that can do that. And, okay, his career is not long on experience, but the most starting experience he's had was one of his best PFF grades, was very good in coverage. The year before that was the third highest uh, amount of playing time he's had, and that was like an elite coverage grade. So, again, roll the dice on this guy. See if we can plug him in. He's actually a hidden gem. Love that. Problem is, like, again, at some point, where are the foundation pieces? Like, okay, Deshaun Watson is his own issue off to the side. Whether he's getting traded, whether he's going to jail, whatever's going on, Deshaun Watson is – there's a pin parked in him in terms of what we're doing moving forward. But you need more than a quarterback anyway. So at some stage, we need some significant building blocks to this team that can't just come in the draft. Like we, This roster is so bad, it needs some significant work attached to it. So it just sort of feels generally like the Texans are making all these complex decisions on like fit and finish to a house. And the house right now is without walls or a roof and somebody has the foundation slab up on a truck about to either drive it to Miami or jail. Like, where, what are we doing here is my, my point. My feeling is uh, Belichick's made the statement before that um, talent provides the floor and character provides the ceiling, right? Right. Where I think we, all, we often look at it the other way, where it's like, well, ta- if you have a really talented team, your, your ceiling's higher. And I wonder if we're just seeing that Patriot way philosophy and, and, and Casario is just saying we're going to get good solid football players guys that, uh, there's a lot of familiar faces old Patriots and guys that Casario's you know you know scouted or had in New England before some that haven't but they're just getting a whole bunch of solid players you know Marcus Cannon and all these guys are going to start is this just more of a culture play um, than anything and and could it be argued even though the Texans are 4-12, and 12, and I think even when they made the AFC uh, division round two years ago, I thought that the roster was extremely flawed and carried by Watson mm-hmm. in the passing attack, right? But could it be argued that, let's just assume Watson's there for a minute. He's still throwing to Brandon Cooks and Randall Cobb's there, and the offensive line has been reasonable in pass protection. The offense is kind of good enough, right? And that the defense absolutely needs impact players. But if you do scrape it together with a, with solid players are upgrades over what they had. Solid players, like a Shaq Lawson, is an upgrade over what they've had. Or a Terrence, uh, a Terrence Brooks, like all these guys that they've had. Desmond King. Could you argue that if Watson's back, this is like an 8-8 eight and eight team. Because if Watson plays at the same level, you're not winning four games. If he's the number three quarterback in the NFL next year, you're automatically a 7-8 or eight win team. In, generally. And then these guys are, you know, scraping it together and maybe competing for nine or ten wins. And they're actually far better than it seems. And and just to remember I mentioned that the Patriots might look like, remember 2001, nobody remembers that. 2001, they just got the Anthony Pleasance of the world. This was just like rotational defensive end central. Brian Cox and uh, all these guys, Roman Pfeiffer, guys at the end of their career, they were role players. That's how the Texans are building here. And it actually completely turned the Patriots around in one year, set the culture and set the baseline for the next 20 years. That's what it feels like they're at least trying. My two questions would be, how many of these signings 
are needed to equate to one like William Jackson. Like if you bring in William Jackson, who becomes your elite number one corner, um, like that's worth a lot of these signings in one move. And they don't appear to be even targeting players like that, let alone trying to acquire them and, and missing out. And two, your whole point relies on them still having Deshaun Watson, which I think is it does a, becoming a bigger and bigger leap, regardless of whatever happens. Like the latest reports, I think from Aaron Wilson, I forget what the teams were, but half a dozen teams are still interested in trading for Deshaun Watson, despite the specter of um, allegations against him. So it just seems less and less likely that he is their starting quarterback. And if you take him out of it, you've got nothing. Like, you just upgraded the bottom 20 players in your roster, and now you're left with almost no good players. Right. So that, that's the part I agree with. And I am leaning more toward, hey, Watson's probably out of there, even though I'm Mr. Optimistic over here thinks that they were yeah. going to figure it out. If he's back, we might look at these moves and be like, man, look at the Texans. You know, they crept back toward average everywhere. These are all creep back toward average moves defensively yeah. and, and across the roster. I guess my question would be, okay, this is a clear and coherent strategy, and this is presumably step one of the master plan. What's step two? That's all I'm asking. If this is step one, I am. there's enough good signings in this list. Now, granted, there's enough signings whereby you would expect to see enough good signings. Like, when you throw this much stuff at a wall, some of it is going to stick. So, but there's enough good signings in this list and enough good moves and potential upgrades that I'm willing to give them some kind of benefit of the doubt and say, all right, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. This is actually a lot of good moves that I'm, I'm keen to like, but what I need to know is what is next. Like, what is step two of this plan? Because step one is so extreme, that it, like, it can't be the answer. There has to be something else coming. Here's what it is. They, they sign all these guys to one- and two-year contracts because they need to field a team this year. Players have to play. Sure. They've been depleted of draft capital, which is why they're lacking impact players. That's why I'm looking at their roster right now, just their projected depth chart on defense for next year. Nobody graded over 71 mm -hmm. last year, right? That's, they are, they're where they are because they lacked draft capital. This year, they have eight draft picks. First one, though, is 67 overall. Yes. So the next the, the strategy is... These guys, they, they drafted a bunch of bridge players for now until they could actually get impact players in the draft. So part two of the strategy is going to be taking these eight picks here in 2021, none of which they have one pick in the top 100. They're going to – Patriot way, we're going to continue to trade down. I think Casario is going to play it the same so way. So this is essentially just punting on this year, period. It's not punting in this year. I really think, I really think if you asked him and you were in the Texans meetings uh, – you, they would say this is a it's a culture play it, it's like we have to turn well, last year was a losing organization and there's negative vibes here and we're just going to get a bunch of solid football players to turn this thing around we're going to play hard we're going to we're going to set the texans way right this is what they're doing they're getting these players for year one and they're going to they're going to get a ton of rookies this year because they're going to turn eight draft picks into 10 or 11 or 12 right that's what they're going to do and they're all going to be mid-round picks hope that you hit on a couple Next year, they finally have a first-rounder again. Yay! They have first and second-rounders, and they're going to do the same thing. 2022, they're going to turn their seven draft picks into 10 or 11 once again. And in 2021 draft and 2022 draft, your foundation players are joining the team. Now, again, the success of this hinges upon either having Deshaun Watson or having a trade in place to bring in a Tua who becomes your starter or bringing in a Zach Wilson who becomes your starter or, you, or you, you know, whoever else you draft. Um, but... It is a high-volume, 
let's find players from every last inch of the league of availability, free agency and the draft, and see who's going to be a Houston Texan going forward. That is what I perceive the strategy to be. Okay. I mean, I think it does. this does look and probably need to be a multi-year plan which makes things even harder when you're talking about a quarterback that's already fed up on one side of the building. It's, it's probably pretty tough to sell Deshaun Watson on that. Um, you know, there's that clip at the end of the season of J.J. Watt apologizing to Deshaun Watson for essentially wasting one of his prime years. Your first move as the new um, football czar in uh, Houston is to come in and say, yeah, you know the way we the previous regime just wasted one of your years? Well, my plan is to waste another one before we're in position where anything good can happen. Which, again, just probably speaks to the fact that that guy is out of the door. Like, the Texans, yeah, the, this year is probably just about identifying people that can be on the roster in the future when we actually have a shot at building something. Right now, all we're doing is treading water. All right, other big stories in free agency. I think offensive line overhauls. I know we're talking a lot AFC here today, but offensive line overhauls in general. The Chiefs came in with a very uncomfortable situation in free mm. agency, and they're, they're moving in the right direction. The Steelers completely had to overhaul uh, their offensive line. The Chargers had to, and they've made some moves. Um, which other teams am I forgetting here? I feel the like Vikings the Giants had to, and they've done nothing. Who? <laughs> the Vikings had to, and they've done nothing. Yeah, they lost Riley Reef. The Bengals had to come in and, and uh, reshape everything. And they signed Riley Reef. They signed Riley Reef. Um, so to me, this is one of the biggest stories because we always talk about creep back toward average. And I think that there is a, a few teams that are risking going from the top half of the league as an offensive line. The Chiefs were risking it. They were a top half of the league offensive line, no matter what you saw in the Super Bowl. The Chiefs were risking it. The Steelers were risking it. Um, all these teams had to completely... Raiders you know, or the Raiders have their entire offense deleted line. their entire offensive <laughs> line and they're starting from scratch. So I think there are a lot of teams playing with fire yeah. this offseason. And it's one of the biggest stories. It's going to determine how good they are next year. I mean, generally, it's a really interesting um, landscape in terms of how teams have approached the offensive line. The Giants cut their best offensive lineman before free agency. Zeitler. Zeitler. Yeah. Fair to say. Yep. Um, so. Yeah, it's a really interesting way. The Chiefs was fascinating because they – now, both those moves made sense in terms of, look, Mitchell Schwartz, back injury, getting on, high number, okay, in a vacuum, that makes sense. Eric Fisher tore his Achilles in the AFC Championship game. He's going to be out for a while. Again, in a vacuum, makes sense. Problem is you combine that with Austin Ryder hitting free agency and the other two spots being your two weakest links anyway. Now you've got an entire five starting offensive linemen – that are not good on paper before when you head into free agency. So just in terms of like leaving yourself work to do, that was a hell of a strategy. Now they addressed it as a team that understood that and that they prioritized throwing money at offensive linemen. They were apparently in on the Trent Williams sweepstakes, missed out on that, threw all the money at Joe Tooney, uh, got him, then bring in Kyle Long, which I really like as a, a gamble who could potentially upgrade one of those spots. Resign Mike Remmers, I think, which is a quiet, understated I, move. Absolutely. Solid. Um, and then there's now talk that they'll get Austin Ryder back, um, the market for him. It's also really interesting because it's a down year for free agency general, right? The, the salary cap went down. There's less money around. I think a lot of teams have been taking the gamble that, look, we're going to expose these guys 
to the marketplace in a in the way that we normally wouldn't and it usually if you let a guy test the open market he's going to find more money on the open market than he's going to find where you were because why wouldn't he you're a captive audience the second you open it up to 31 other offers somebody is going to beat you um so generally exposing a guy to the marketplace means you're probably not getting him back um and it's a it's a huge risk that he's going to fly for extra money this year though I don't know that that risk is as strong as it used to be. And actually, a lot of teams seem to have been able to expose guys to the marketplace to lower their number. Yeah. And say, all right, you think you're going to get this kind of money? Give it a shot. Give us a phone call in a few days and see where you are. And I think a lot of team or a few teams have probably smartly attacked that approach and said, use the market essentially to lower the value and the asking price of free agents that they had coming up. And the Chiefs might have done that with Austin Ryder, saying, look, we like you. You're a good player, but we're not going to pay you monster you know, center money. If you can find that in the open market, good luck to you. If you can't, you know, let's talk again in a week's time and see where we are. And that appears to be what they've done. And if they can get Ryder back, added to Remmers and Kyle Long and you know, potentially uh, Lauren Duvernay-Tardif coming back, um, and then you, you just need to find your left tackle. They've Mitchell, suddenly Mitchell could come back too. Sure. Mitchell, Mitchell Schwartz could come back, gets healthy, and says, you know what? I like I like the Chiefs for one year, six million. Yeah. I, you know, I want to go back there. And Remmers becomes the swing tackle. And like the Chiefs are positioning themselves to just maybe draft a left tackle in the first round. We do always say, like, don't go fill a need or whatever, but I like that there, there's value there. There's going to be a good left tackle, I think, at the back end of the first round. And I and and there's they're patching it together right now, but that'll have some, you know look you know future implications that i think are good so going going from having four holes to fill four four spots to maybe just one in the mm -hmm. draft is huge for the chiefs yeah um the other thing that i think is underrated here not only are you getting a ton of releases right now of players there's a lot of players still out there and we always like to focus on the draft and we said you know fill your needs before the draft how many don't forget what happens coming out of the draft you have a team that drafts like three wide receivers and then their top two receivers get released you have a team that drafts a few offensive linemen and then some solid players hit the market i think we're going to be sitting here in may and june and a lot of good players are either getting released or still unsigned yeah and you're still going to be able to pick up valuable players which again goes back to this patriot strategy of throw all the money at players that only have two or three other competitors are, are there going to be a lot more Nelson Aguilar-level players out there for a fraction of the price this particular season? I think there will be yeah. after the draft. If you have the discipline to draft honestly and then hope that what is still available can plug an area of need after the draft, it's not the worst thing in the world. Like So the Indianapolis Colts, I think, are a fascinating uh, case study because they're a team that doesn't like to go crazy in free agency spending in the first wave. They like that second wave of free agents. But they're also a team with a glaring need at left tackle and a quarterback that more than most needs decent offensive line play. Like Carson, Carson Wentz. Wentz is a huge question mark right now. And even at his best, has been a player who suffers more than most quarterbacks when put under pressure. So we really need to make sure that his left tackle is at least halfway decent and, and not a reason that he stays as bad Carson Wentz. So... You know, our argument before free agency was, look, you don't like to do this, but seriously, go nuts and spend on Trent Williams. Just lock it up, answer the problem once and for all. They didn't do that. Fine. Um, it was probably always going to happen. 
Now it's like, well, they pick number 21 in the draft. There will almost certainly be one of the decent tackles there. But now it comes down to what your evaluation on those guys is. Is the one that you evaluate as a quality starting left tackle from day one, is he going to be there? Do you want to run that risk? Or should you guarantee viable left tackle play before the draft so that you don't even need to chase that and pray and you know hope that that happens? Should you sign a Villanueva or a Russell Okung or just somebody that you're comfortable starting now you can go into the draft and say, all right, if a great tackle falls to where we are at 21, we take him, but we don't need to make, we don't need to like hope and pray that that happens or swing the entire draft around that. I would, I would do both. I mean, I would, I would absolutely sign the guy. Yeah. But then, then alternatively, there's a good one available. Alternatively, you can go into the draft and say, all right, if, if our great tackle falls to 21, we take him. If not, we take a wide receiver or whatever else is there. And then we hope that a Russell Okung or a Villanueva is still there in June or may and we snag that guy after the draft when it didn't all work out but there's obviously more risk attached to that it is interesting here here's one more story big story for free agency right here salary cap space remaining number two broncos number four panthers number five jets mm-hmm. it's like they're all those are three. They're all leaving some some I, room. Yeah, I can't remember what the teams were, the, the exhaustive list of teams that were still interested in trading for Deshaun Watson, but those were 100% three of the teams on that list. Broncos, Panthers, and Jets. Yes. So they're all sitting there. Now, the Jaguars sitting there with a ton of space as well. The Colts there with a lot of space as well. We thought the Colts might be a little bit more aggressive. But again, I, I really think that their offseason, the Colts offseason is going to come down to left tackle in multiple playmakers multiple receivers and tight ends to uh to make life easier for Carson Wentz yeah and the Colts are also they're going to keep some space they've got some players of their own that are going to need to be extended relatively soon they're not going to spend all of their money you know all of all of their cap space on external free agents they are going to need to use some of that space in the future for that's, their own players coming that's down a good that's a good point because so when you're t- when you're building a team the different cycles you're going through here the Colts just spent like three years trading down, accumulating draft picks, adding guys like Quentin Nelson and Darius Leonard. Some, even if they're not the most valuable positions, Nelson's the best guard in football. Darius Leonard's a top 10, five to 10 linebacker. Darius, he's the best linebacker in the NFL. Darius, you're the best linebacker in the NFL. Friend of the show. Um, those guys are going to be locked up, as you said. So you have to have that plan so that you can keep your own so that they're all not just walking a free agency. So I yeah. think that is where the Colts deploy their space in the coming years for sure. Um, what other big stories here? I think I don't want to stick to just AFC stuff. I think the Jaguars are just fascinating because they have – we know that they're getting Trevor Lawrence and you're trying to figure, okay, what's the best way to build around him? And they have so many holes around this roster. And, um, you know, there's some stuff that we like. There's some stuff that we don't necessarily like. But they're going to be one of the stories of the season, seeing you know how, you know, getting into the mind of Urban Meyer too. Assuming he's a part of all these decisions, it's not just him; it's Trent Baalke. But that whole overhaul there is is one of the stories of free agency as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the Jags, they've done a lot, so there's a lot of so there's some good moves in there as well. I I don't love all of them, but they've operated as you would have expected a team to operate knowing that they're probably going to get Trevor Lawrence coming into the building and need to at least put something around him that makes this thing tick going forward Um, they've added some defensive line beef they've added a cornerback that should be their number one and help that trio become pretty good 
Um, I, I like some of the moves they've made. The one thing that I think is worth talking about as a storyline, though, is like the balance of power shifting in the NFC East. So Washington is arguably the single biggest winner in free agency overall, certainly one of the best free agencies. The Dallas Cowboys lock down Dak Prescott. They get that done. Um, Philadelphia has done basically nothing except cut players to get under the salary cap. And the New York Giants have made some moves, but I don't know if they've attacked. I don't know if they've kept pace with Washington and Dallas. So, you know, ordering the NFC East heading into 2021. Before we get into it, I just want to tell our friends about Underdog Fantasy. And if you like fantasy football and you like playing fantasy for money, you need to check out Underdog Fantasy. They've got everything, including season-long and playoff best ball. Best ball is a season-long game where you draft the team like you normally do, and then that's it. No in-season roster management. Underdog automatically selects your best performers each week, saving you loads of time. Now, here's the catch. The catch is the deal is incredible. Go to Underdog Fantasy. Deposit just yeah, right. Mm. Deposit just ten bucks using the promo code PFF. Just ten dollars, and you get a free PFF annual annual subscription. I still can't believe we do this. It's promo code PFF. Ten dollars is the is what you need to deposit. Promo codes PFF. You get a free PFF edge, edge annual subscription, which is worth forty bucks. So getting it for ten feels like a good deal. Sam, draft now at Underdog Fantasy. So you want to unpack the NFC East. Let's reorder it, yeah. so to speak. Um, by the way, I was wondering, were we reaching the point where the Washington football team was going to become the Washington something else? You know, the I think they said we're going one more year of they did. WFT. They, they right? announced with the there's – apparently there's a website dedicated to the rebrand, which I didn't know. But anyway, that's recently released a statement saying the new identity will not be ready until 2022. If Fitzpatrick leads them to, like, a couple playoff wins or whatever, I think the Washington silhouette should – Fitzmagics? Yeah, it should be, like, the Fitzmagics with the beard. That would be great. Beard silhouette. Yeah. We're, speaking of, where's our faces? I don't know, oh, but man. we're in Cincinnati now, apparently. Back in the studio. Cincinnati. Yeah, we're live from right outside Paul Brown Stadium. This here. thing moves. This it whole, is. whole room. It is beautiful. Shifts. It's a beautiful morning here in Cincinnati. It's nice. Yeah. We should do some on location. We should do it from like uh, Red's opening day in yeah. a couple of weeks. It's a big it's a big day. We celebrate you know, the parade and all that oh, stuff. Yeah. I don't think they, I don't know if they're doing it this year, but <laughs> they used to celebrate opening day over here yeah so i let's just set the set the tone here the nfc east a year ago at this time looked very clearly like it was hey cowboys and eagles and then the giants the cowboys and eagles are at the top the giants and the football team are in rebuilding mode and the reality of what happened last year Dak gets hurt so we don't really know what dallas would have been the eagles completely fall apart every team is bad mm. eagles fall apart giants were feisty and then the football team Got their defense in order, had horrible quarterback play, but their their coaching baseline that Ron Rivera and that staff brought, I think elevated the football team to the division title. How would you reshape the NFC East now, given all of the moves? Uh, I think Philadelphia are rock bottom. Um, I think the Giants are probably next. And then I think it's Washington and Dallas battling it out to be the best team in the division. And one of them might actually be, you know, above 500 and a good record. I, so I agree on <laughs> Dallas and Washington. I think as, as much as Jalen Hurts didn't necessarily impress down the stretch, at least us, I know there was hype. I, can you see a scenario where Jalen Hurts is a really efficient quarterback and adds to the run game and they're just, again, I always go back to this. It's like an uncomfortable offense because it's not efficient in the passing attack all the time. It's an uncomfortable offense that moves the ball. Um, so Jalen Hurts is interesting for me because – 
I was a lot lower on him coming out than other people as a prospect. So when you've only seen a guy play for like three or four games, your priors have to be a big part of that, right? Of your evaluation of him going forward. Yeah. A huge percentage of that must be what you thought of him before he played any games. Um, and what I thought of Jalen Hurts was not as good as other people did. So I don't love his potential ceiling right now because I haven't really seen much to suggest that it's higher than it, I thought it was when he was coming out. He wasn't as good as the hype when he was when he initially came into the lineup. He did make a, like a, a dramatic difference to the offense overall, but a huge part of that was just he isn't Carson Wentz right now. Like Wentz was just in this death spiral of hideous play that was dragging everything down with him and played his way to the bench. Like they Wentz enforced that change with his play the way Marcus Mariota enforced the change in Tennessee. It was a move that wouldn't wasn't planned, shouldn't have happened, but was basically thrust upon the team because the quarterback was playing so badly that it was sinking the ship. Um, so Hertz made a difference, and it was a notable and obvious difference. But I think most of that was just you're not Wentz, and that takes you a, a step or two higher than the than the offense has been going before you have to evaluate anything. Then you know he made some nice plays, particularly on the ground. I do think that that rushing threat does change things but I, I just don't know if we've seen enough from him as a passer to say that that is it makes the team the offense functional in a positive way above just ex, you know average play I, I just don't I don't see the ceiling there in Jalen Hurts yeah so I would say the Eagles are the wild card in this whole thing the wild card in the east as far as it, you know harder to predict the Giants improving the receiver situation for the first time under Daniel Jones. I think it's going to depend on Galladay's health. And, you know, we'll say Jones' development in year three. I'm still of the mind. I don't know that he necessarily gets a lot better. I just think his outcomes could be all over the place in any given year, given their, his style. Yeah, their offensive line now becomes a real issue. Or not issue, but the, the thing that determines their ceiling. Like, they, right. they added receiving help to Daniel Jones. Now you got to make sure that he stays upright. Again, Daniel Jones is a pretty critical quarterback in terms of needing protection, not for the same reason. Um, his play under pressure doesn't fall off the same cliff that Carson Wentz does, but Daniel Jones has that obliviousness in the pocket thing. So I, the larger the pocket you can create around him, the better for Daniel Jones's uh, production. Like the less opportunity there is for somebody to just come in unbeknownst to Daniel Jones and swipe the ball out of his hands, the better. <laughs> One of our astute listeners, as I said, who's the best team in the NFC? Astute listener says the Rams. Ah, yes. We had a not-so-astute listener <laughs> criticize you for calling the Rams an NFC East team the other day. So, sorry we have to explain the joke. You don't, you don't want to have to explain the joke. The Rams no. beat every NFC East team last year. They're not going to play them this year, though, right? They only play they the play Giants. last year. Just the Giants. Yeah. That's it. So Rams picked need... up Deshaun Jackson. That's worth the story, too. Yeah, who's the, uh, who plays the NFC East this year? What are the divisions? Um, first, I believe uh, the the NFC South. Okay. So the Bucks, Saints. So the Bucks could be so the, the Bucks NFC might East win champs. the NFC East, yeah. um, and then the AFC West as well. Uh, and with the seventeen game schedule, I forget, how's that seventeenth game determined? Man, I, we need to do a whole show on how much I hate the seventeen game schedule. I like more football, but isn't your thing though strictly that it just messes up the records? Yes, which have already been messed up by increasing the games in the past. Yeah, but that was like 30, 40 years ago. We've, we've oh, so now, it doesn't count? 
No, we just have like a new. We have Screw a new you, Jim Brown. We you played in the '60s. I don't care about you. We have a new baseline of of records and. Yeah, and then when we add a 17th game, there will be a new baseline of records. Yeah, I don't. That's how this works. I don't want to start again. You Career just, records, like Matthew Stafford's going to be the all-time passing. You know what you are? You are the people. What they say? Technology is anything that was invented after you were born, like, and it becomes witchcraft. You were the guy that, like, I settled when we had tape decks and Walkmans, and anything after that is just idiocy. We, we didn't need it. I was fine with my cassettes. Plug them into the dashboard of the car. That was how we rolled. Mixtapes, nailed it. What is all this crap with Bluetooth and, you know... I was a slow adopter. Digital. I don't need any of that. That's you. That's basically your argument right now is, oh, we've, we're already here. We made the advancements. Now just stop advancing. Stop moving. Leave it. We've already done it. Slow adopter. Mm. That's me. You fear change. That's what we're talking about here. I embrace it when necessary. Apparently it's necessary because it's happening. All right. So NFC East, I like football team in, in Dallas at the top. The draft is gonna is gonna bring that together. Dallas rumored to be looking to trade Michael Gallup. Hmm. Do you think that's I think it's the right move because I don't think you're gonna be locking him up in the future. Yeah. And so as much as our strategy get three to four really good receivers, you're putting your quarterback in the best position to succeed. Amari Cooper, C.D. Lamb, you have those guys. It's just a pain in the ass to maintain three or four receivers is the problem. It, it is, is. Where Dallas are, right? It's like we're not going to be able to keep him, so let's get him now. But is this But is this where you wide receiver three now for you becomes, let's trade Michael Gallup, get some draft picks in return for the future, and sign a T.Y. Hilton, who's still out there, right? So also you, are I those mean, the moves you can make to kind of maintain the, that trio? Did they re-up, or did, is he just still on the roster? But Cedric Wilson is a guy that can play. Um, and it's been buried on that depth chart because they've had those guys ahead of him. You throw one of those. I mean, I don't you know can. what they're going to get from Michael Gallup, but let's say it's a mid-round pick. Just use that mid-round pick on a wide receiver. It's a great wide receiver draft again. Let that receiver compete with Cedric Wilson, and maybe one of those guys can become Michael Gallup for cheaper. Plus, you've got other holes on the roster. Still need help, Dallas, in the secondary Along the defensive line. But they're a team that loves to draft for need. <laughs> they, they are going to be hammering that first-round pick on a cornerback, assuming he's there. Yeah, and it, but I think the value should should match up as yeah, well. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, they are a team where you can pencil in. Whatever their biggest need is going to be where they throw their first-round pick. So Dallas and then the football team we mentioned uh, on the Daily a little bit and on the NFC podcast last week. Look, they're making all the right moves. William Jackson – Curtis Samuel, the ones that at least on paper seem right, and then Ryan Fitzpatrick improving that quarterback play from far below average to you know, if, Fitzpatrick's been top 15 the last three years. Yeah, if you are not capable of being in the Deshaun Watson, the Russell Wilson sweepstakes, or the top quarterbacks in this draft, Ryan Fitzpatrick was the play. And I include over Carson Wentz. Like Washington, Indianapolis made the Carson Wentz trade precisely because they didn't want to be in the position that Washington were in which is not having a real shot at a top quarterback and having to settle for Ryan Fitzpatrick. I think having to settle for Ryan Fitzpatrick was a better gamble to take than trading what could potentially be a first-round pick for Carson Wentz. So from that perspective, I think Washington absolutely nailed what they had on the table in terms of quarterback options. Uh, Eric Eager, the doctor, the doctor, he's going to be writing this week, or he's already written this week, something about these con the Ryan Fitzpatrick contract 
Andy Dalton, I can't remember if he puts Cam Newton in the same bucket, essentially says that these $10 million quarterback contracts, am I missing someone there? The, the $10 million QB contracts, uh, Jameis, are good for the NFL. Um, and I think he's, he's considering it not Taysom, necessarily a market. Taysom Hill. <laughs> yeah. He's, um, uh, he Dalton. is. Did he say Dalton? He said Dalton. Okay. Yes. I think he's considering it almost like a reset of the market. Um, and, but I would, I, I didn't hear all of his points. I'm not sure if I completely agree with that. I feel like those are quarterbacks that are in the 20s. You know, the, the NFL perceives them as QB 25, 30. Um, Fitzpatrick included, even though he's played really well. Mm. But they're getting $10 million contracts, which are not bad for the salary cap. We, we've seen that a Cam Newton contract, which is up to $13 million, allows the Patriots to go nuts if they want. The football team can make some some big signings here and, and what have you. What are your thoughts on that? Because I, I don't – we've talked a lot about, like, resetting the middle class of quarterbacks, which I think is more Carson Wentz. Jared Goff, that's the middle class of quarterbacks when you talk about long-term plays. But this is the strategy we had talked about last offseason. Do you get Cam Newton, Andy Dalton? These guys are all starting caliber quarterbacks. Ryan Fitzpatrick, do you go? Are these the teams that are going to start going year to year and just grabbing whoever they can for $10 million? It's probably a step in the right direction. The problem is this whole thing gets complicated by how early you have to decide on quarterbacks. You essentially have to make two significant calls on a quarterback throughout his career. You have to make the initial call, which is when you're drafting him, how good is this guy in the NFL? So Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, how good are they going to be? Call number one. Then after two or three years, you have to make call number two, which is, okay, now we've seen them in the NFL. Are they legit? Like, are they for real? Are they perennial pro bowlers, all pros? Because now we have to pony up $100 plus million dollars and make that call again. And that, when you have to make that decision, is this interesting tension between, like the earlier you make that call, the cheaper the number is, the cheaper the contract is, the cheaper it is for you to do that deal. But the less information you have and the bigger the chance is that you get it wrong. So this is the Carson Wentz, the Jared Goff thing, Dak Prescott, all that class are a really great example of this whole scenario where the earlier, the, the earlier you make the call, the bigger the chances you screw it up and you end up saddled with this Jared Goff-Carson Wentz contract versus Dak where they strung that out for as long as humanly possible and the number just kept going up and up and up and up and Dak signs for this monster deal because he, there was no drop-off ever. So now you're in this world where in an ideal scenario, guys like Carson Wentz, eh, maybe not Wentz, but Jared Goff would be a great example. In an ideal world, you look at Jared Goff and you say, all right, We've seen borderline top 10 play from him, and we've seen that that's good enough to get us where we need to go if the roster is good enough around him, which we need enough money to create. So Jared Goff, going for, from what we've seen so far, Jared Goff's extension should have been middle-class quarterback extension, which doesn't yet exist. The only way that it exists is in these deals that we're talking about now, which is after that contract is crapped out somewhere, you then go, all right, now we get to reset where you should actually be, and you're going to sign for like a $10 million, $12 million, $15 million deal, somewhere under that price, because we now know that you aren't at that level. So I think it's a step maybe towards that. Now what we need is some team to figure out how to bridge those two, where you get a guy coming up for his next contract who's in this limbo world, where we don't know still whether you are 
for real, whether you're a perennial pro bowler or whether you are just in this middle class of quarterbacks. And maybe, I mean, it's probably not, but maybe Baker Mayfield is the most obvious version of that right now, like on the horizon. Baker has shown us two years of good play, one year of bad play, and even the good has had a ceiling to it where you're saying, I mean, I don't know if you're ever going to get to that next level. So Baker is the, the most obvious candidate for someone to go, let's figure out how to do a deal that doesn't cripple either of us. If you fall off a cliff, we're not, we're not motivated to get rid of you to the point we were with Jared Goff or Carson Wentz. On the other hand, if you're not as good as a perennial pro bowler, you're not getting, you know, 150 million. I, I, the problem there is I think the quarterback still has so much leverage. Yeah. The quarterback is so if, if the Browns go and they say the the best quarterbacks are making forty, there's ten guys above thirty, Baker, you're yeah. you're thirty. And that's why it needs to be We're paying you like QB ten. It needs to be both sides coming together and figuring out how to bridge that gap. Because right now it isn't. It's just who wins the negotiation. Either right. either the team wins the negotiation in which case you're, you're potentially saddled with the giant contract if you screwed it up, or the player wins it and the team just gets screwed for the cost. I don't know what I would do in these, these situations, though. Because, again, if, if Baker, Baker says, look, Baker has an, uh, an argument to say, I'm, I'm at DAC level, right? And so the problem is when one guy gets paid, yeah. or overpaid, so to speak, like if we were just paying them based off of your QB1, you get the most. Your QB, it's straight meritocracy. Dak would be QB 8 to 12 right now, right? But he's 3, right? So Or 2. So if Baker says, well, I'm at Dak's level, even though they're probably battling to be like the 10th best quarterback in the league, 8th best quarterback in the league, Baker's going to say, I'm worth 40. The but what do you do if you're the Browns? Because if, if Dallas just let Dak walk, Dak goes to the Bears or something like that, and then all of a sudden Dallas is stuck with Andy Dalton. And you go from QB 10, 8 to 10, 12, to Dalton, who's in the 20s. And that drop-off is so massive, you have to pay for the security of having Dak or having Baker or having a guy that you know is a high-end starter. The problem is the contract mechanisms right now because in an, really what you want is for the money to be tied to performance. So say yeah. Baker's contract comes up and he says, all right, this is fair. You, Everybody in this room believes that you are a, a good quarterback who can become a great quarterback. Otherwise, we wouldn't be making this deal. But... There's enough out there in your history to give us pause that you will ever get there. So let's create a deal whereby you get paid like Aaron Rodgers if you play like Aaron Rodgers. And if you don't, you don't. You get paid less. But the problem is the whole system right now is set up with guaranteed money. It's players trying to get as much guaranteed as humanly possible. Dak Prescott is getting $75 million this year. In which case, who the hell cares what happens after that? Like, you won the negotiation. You set yourself up with that. So Baker, it's not in his interest to set up a deal where he gets paid as he deserves in terms of his on-field performance. It's in his interest to get the most guaranteed money as soon as possible. So he's motivated by getting so the, the biggest number. So the deal that we argue about all the time. That's Yeah, that's what that's, he's chasing. That is the play. I mean, the, the Raiders did it with Derek Carr. The Niners did it with Jimmy Garoppolo. And I think ultimately that that is the play. The Niners can get out of Jimmy Garoppolo's contract with with cap savings and not dead money at this point. The Raiders can do the same thing with Derek Carr. They front loaded uh, the Niners specifically front row, front loaded the contract. So at this point, if Jimmy Garoppolo flamed out, they could get out of it. The Raiders 
kind of did something similar. Derek Carr is going to be a free agent after 2022, so they do have a decision to make on him soon. And, and if, if, you know, if, if Carr and the Raiders don't win next year in 2021, not only is Gruden maybe in trouble, but Carr is probably not the QB of the future for the Raiders. You know, even if he plays well, if they have another 7-9 you know, or an 8-8 eight eight type of season, he's going to hit free agency after 2022, Derek Carr. And you're going to have another situation where a team's moving on from a middle-class type of quarterback like a Derek Carr, right? Same as Jared Goff, same as Carson Wentz. So QB contracts, a big story in this whole thing. So to, to answer my initial point, Eric saying it's, you know, the $10 million contracts are good. I don't think we're there yet for the middle-class, true middle-class quarterback. I think contract. they're good, but I think they're only a step in that direction. The big puzzle is the one that we just talked about, which is that dynamic, the second contract for a quarterback how do we figure that out so that we are so that that at the moment is too binary it's either no it's either you're Mitchell Trubisky we're not picking up that deal and you're going somewhere else or it's congratulations you have passed the litmus test you're getting 150 million dollars there needs to be something between those two extremes where it's and that's what the fifth year option is kind of designed to do but it, it doesn't really that is the that's the problem the teams need to work on and players need to work on right now the $10 million quarterbacks in the next wave is a step in the right direction, but that's the big issue right now is how do we create a middle ground between those two extremes? The Patriots strategy of making sure, if you have one of those $10 million quarterbacks, making going all in on the rest of the roster, though, is the, yeah. is the move, right? Because you can't, you can't just roll with Cam Newton or Marcus Mariota or Ryan Fitzpatrick or Andy Dalton with a... Middle, you can't have a middle-class quarterback and a middle-class roster. If you have a middle-class or lower-tier ro- quarterback, you have to have an elite roster to even have a chance. And that's the strategy. The only other note I have as far as like big stories here is the edge defender class or uh, free agent moves here. I just think there is this – we talked about Carl Lawson and Bud Dupree and guys making a, a ton of money. It feels like these contracts were all over the place. Some guys made high-end money. Uh, Leonard Floyd made a lot of money. Trey Hendrickson made made some money. Matthew Judon, but then you have guys like Tyus Bowser, who we said the drop like the drop off from a Matthew Judon to a Tyus Bowser is that enough to warrant all you know double the money essentially? So I, I think the shrewd teams, Hassan Reddick was a was a steal. Yeah, uh, on a one year deal, I think the shrewd teams are are mopping up. I mean, I in think this area. Here. I think generally, this free agency period is going to show a lot of it's going to show a lot of differences between smart teams and not because this is a unique um, situation in terms of money available, in terms of salary cap shrinking. And generally speaking, when you ask teams to think on their feet, smart teams do it well, dumb teams don't. Um, And, you know, one thing that's interesting is like, you know, the Patriots saying in a normal year, we're up against five or six different teams and this year it was one or two. How do you know? I mean, who's telling you that the team that you're bidding the agent that you're bidding against well even if you do know you would be more less inclined to overpay for players if the market is smaller, yeah, yeah but so you'd be less inclined so it doesn't whether they know or not the results are still like man you guys overpaid yes but my point is like <laughs> I mean, maybe this wasn't true and the only the only information there is what's essentially coming from the agents or other teams you can glean information out of, none of whom are particularly incentivized towards actually telling you the truth in this situation. So that, like, that is a piece of information that should not come to your attention through means that you have access to. I bet it's you a piece a of information. 
that should you. only really come to your attention through people that are actually disincentivized towards telling you the truth. I bet you have a feel though, because if you've if you've negotiated with the same agent and last year he's like, man, I got I got eight mystery teams here battling against you, and this year he's like, yeah, you know, it's just two other teams, and you you know, yeah, you just I'm have just a saying, feel of who you're talking to. Through we're the in this weird world right now where there's less money to go around than normal, and um, because of that, contracts are all over the map. And I think you've highlighted well that yeah, edge rusher maybe more than any other position is where that was manifested the most, where the, the contracts are just crazy. But I think generally, just seeing how teams have reacted to this strange world where most teams don't have money, there's a lot more players getting cut and dumped onto the market than usual, and less money to go around to sign them all is kind of interesting. And we're not over with this, right? The second wave is usually where the best business is done. And in this year, more than any other, the second wave is only just starting. Like Teams are still sitting there with a bunch of money, a lot of them in a holding pattern waiting to see what happens with Deshaun Watson. But there's a lot of good players still available who might be able to get picked up for like peanuts before we head into the season. So a team like, you look at the team like the Vikings and you're like, they haven't done anything to fix that offensive line, which sucks. Uh, and it's like, well, that's a failure. They're, they're done. But the Vikings might be able to pick up two or three halfway decent offensive linemen later on when nobody's paying attention for not much money because those guys are sitting and waiting and there isn't an offer coming on the table. So the other market, uh, let's wrap it up with this. Wide receiver market, similar, right? You have John Brown was number 38 on our free agent board after he got released. He gets released, we reshape the board, he's number 38. Uh, just ahead of T.Y. Hilton on the receiver board, uh, ahead of Curtis Samuel, who we, who we quite like, but I think you know the consistency level that John Brown has had when healthy is the question. John Brown's consistency in, in the deep threat has been more valuable. Marvin Jones is up there. Nelson Aguilar was a little bit lower on our list. Again, he signs a big contract with the Patriots. If he plays like he did last year, he would rank higher. The problem with him is he's 40% of his career. He's been good. 60%, not good. What are your thoughts on the receiver market, though? Juju Smith-Schuster turns down the Chiefs to go back to the Steelers. John Brown is going to make $3.75 million. He's going to make a, a quarter of what Nelson Aguilar is going to make as a similar deep threat for the Patriots. We love building with receivers. We love adding these guys. But, man, there are steals to be had here if you're patient. Yeah, and, and again, being able to exploit what is now a one-year target market for a lot of players because the salary cap went down this year. The TV deals just got announced. The cap is going to I mean, not spike, but it's going to go up in the subsequent years. So now – any free agent is incentivized to not take a long-term deal to take a one-year deal and hit the market in a year's time when you get a lot more money. So now you're in, again, this, this next wave, you get teams exploiting that one-year target market, guys that actually want to just come in and have a career year and hit the market again. So teams like Juju's entire offer slate was allegedly these one-year deals. They had an offer on the table from Pittsburgh, from Baltimore and from Kansas City, which were all within a million dollars of each other in terms of salary, but differed in terms of incentives. I think Kansas City was offering more incentives and so was Baltimore. Pittsburgh was just offering the one-year $8 million deal, and he basically turned down the incentives in favor of familiarity and, and all those things in Pittsburgh. But like there was either there was no long-term deal on offer on the table or him and his agent 
were specifically telling people, look, we're not looking for a long-term deal here because the money won't be there. Give us the one-year contract. So now there's going to be a bunch of teams that can add these guys for one year and say, all right, we know it's not a long-term play, but we're only looking for you to come in and boost our win rate in 2020 or 2021 and then see you. So it's a rental. Another thing that crossed my mind, Detroit Lions bringing in Tyrell Williams and Brashad Perryman. Perryman reunited back in back in Detroit. We've, I remember I mentioned about Leonard Floyd, you know, the, the Rams being almost like a uh, comp pick creator. Yeah. Right. What if what if you are a rebuilding team? You've got this six year contract. You're the Lions. Is this the perfect play? You grab a Tyrell Williams, you grab a Brashad Perryman. They're your top two receivers this year. You, you might probably draft some guys and you want to develop them, too, for the future feed these guys targets all year Tyrell Williams Brashad Perryman they're on one-year contracts build up their value and then they go sign elsewhere next year maybe you know for big money and you end up getting comp picks in return I'm just I'm trying to think of what those edges would be how do you build up player value for your benefit in the short a little bit of benefit in the short term but more for that long-term play and I think Detroit could be in position with Tyrell Williams and Rashad Perryman to make them look good a year from now and maybe they hit the market and make some money I mean alternatively those are your top two receivers and you have Jared Goff a quarterback and your entire passing game stinks and nobody makes any money next year yeah your passing game might stink but you're going to pass a lot right receivers volume stats are what sell receivers so it doesn't okay. matter how good your quarterback is game like receiver production is more based upon game flow than it is quality of quarterback how did right? that work out for the Jets last year well that was bad yeah, yeah. Well, nobody was healthy, so they couldn't. Oh, I see. There was nobody that played. If they had a guy that played 16 games, you would have had like Braxton Berrios with 90 catches or something, <laughs> and, he, and he would have looked I, good. I don't think If, if somebody was healthy, if, if Tyrell Williams and Brashad Perryman are the top two receivers for the Lions, they go 2-14, and 14, uh -huh. and they stay healthy the entire season. Tyrell Williams is going to go 75 catches for 1,000 yards. Brashad Perryman is going to go 60 catches for 800 yards, and they're going to look good. <laughs> if they stay healthy, they're going to get targets. No, Whether Jared Goff grades at 60 in PFF grade, if he's a 60 grade or an 80 grade, high-volume passing attacks breed – this is you know, your fantasy tip here. Find teams that are going to pass a lot, and that's where you're going to get valuable receivers. Yeah, I don't think I that's – I mean, from a statistical standpoint. I don't think that's a, an answer to uh, generating your compensatory pick system. I'm saying it could. Yeah, I, I think – I mean, if – there is an edge to be had there, I think, but it is in the Aaron Donald specter of the world, which is understanding, understanding what is unique to your system and your roster makeup that effectively makes a position easier to succeed at than, uh, than normal and knowing when you can therefore cut bait and move on. So whether it's, hey, our quarterback is amazing, our number three receiver will always look good and he doesn't actually need to be any good and just constantly flipping that guy for somebody else in the draft – or whether it's, hey, we have Aaron Donald, the guy next to him is going to get a lot of cleanup opportunities all of the time and always moving on from that guy. I think it's just understanding that. And it may be, it'll be a different edge for every team. It's going to be unique to your circumstance. But just understanding when you have a guy that isn't, isn't necessarily a product of himself, but a product of the environment around him. Running backs is always a good example. Like understanding Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones is a great running back. Packers could have taken advantage of that right. by letting him walk. But how much is Aaron Jones a product of everything yeah. else we've been doing? And if we let Aaron Jones walk, sign somewhere else, and replace him with a random third-round running back, we'd get the third-round pick back in a year's time. Like, that kind of stuff. So that, the Aaron Donald 
partner deal, the whatever. I think it's just figuring out in each individual team. And a lot of teams won't even have them. Right. What do but, we do well? Yeah. Is, is there something we do well to prop up player value? And if that's the case, don't necessarily re-sign those players. Yes. Um, because we could find the next one. Um, sacks always feel sacks do feel like they might be the saves equivalent for baseball where you'll the NFL will always value them for a while and you might be able to take advantage of that I, I like when I dive into the live chat every now and again context free and I read it and trying to figure out what's happening here okay uh, a comment Sam has talents we broke him okay and I'm thinking what what happened to you yeah and then I found I think they're talking about Sam Darnold, Darnold yeah yeah so you're not broken okay. which is nice Anything else, man? Top uh, free agent stories? Anything top of mind or anything you want to discuss on the way out here? No, I think... It's a free-flowing conversation here. Isn't today. it? Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah. Um, I think overall, that that's all the big stories. That's it? Yeah. We nailed it. I, I'm done. What do you got? No, that's it. What did we say we were going to do on Thursday? We I don't had think a plan. we did yet, did we? You and I, we had a plan. We're going to... Big show on Thursday coming back. We're going to have a huge show. We don't know what it is yet, but it's a big show. Yeah, and then uh, next week we'll get into more draft stuff so uh just stick with us the entire week pff.com still covering free agency we still have the uh the underdog fantasy you get your ten dollars ten dollar deposit use promo code pff at underdog fantasy you get edge for free for that ten dollar deposit which is great um and then yeah we'll be back on thursday we'll see about bonus shows this week too if we have enough to talk about we'll do it okay so stick with us appreciate everybody for tuning in and we'll be back on thursday